from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. So this past Sunday, I had to ditch out on a highly anticipated concert with my family thanks to a 101-degree heat index. It capped a week-long heat wave that's blanketed the Northeast. And right now, as I'm recording, 85 million Americans are under an excessive heat warning. And in parts of the Northeast, temperatures could reach 105 to 110 degrees Fahrenheit with humidity taken into account. And look, a concert is a very small price to pay when thousands of people just died across Europe last week thanks to a truly historic heat dome that sat over the continent for days. And if you look at a heat map of the world, it's like one big red blob. June and July saw extreme heat strike North Africa, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and large swaths of the U.S. And amid the coverage of Europe's extreme heat that just broke a bunch of records and threatened infrastructure and put a lot of people in the hospital, an uncanny parallel started to go viral on social media. Are we not being clear? We're trying to tell you that the entire planet is about to be destroyed. Okay. Okay. Um, Well, it's, um, you know, just something we do around here. You know, we just keep the bad news light. That's a clip from the Netflix movie Don't Look Up, a climate allegory about a planet-destroying asteroid that no one takes seriously. And what's coming up next is a clip of a news anchor from GB News interviewing meteorologist John Hammond about the heat that was about to descend on Europe. By early next week, you can scratch 20 degrees. It could well be 40 degrees. I think... There will be hundreds, if not thousands, of excess deaths early next week. The charts that I can see in front of me are frightening. So we all like nice weather, but this will not be nice weather. This will be potentially lethal weather for a couple of days. It'll be brief, but it'll be brutal. So, you know, we can... So, this is, so, John, I want us to be happy about the weather and every single, I don't know whether something's happened to meteorologists to make you all a little bit fatalistic and and (laughs) harbingers of doom. Because all of the broadcasts, particularly on on the BBC, every time I've turned on anyone's talking about the weather, they're saying that there's going to be tons of fatalities. But haven't we always had hot weather? And I squirmed because I imagined myself in that meteorologist's shoes. Like, he was shot outside. It w- seems to have been done to convey, like, that, that it's this bright, nice, sunny day. And there he is talking about how it's going to get so hot that uh, people are going to die. And I was glad that he did what he did. And he did it without resorting to screaming. And it's not like climate scientists want to scream and tell people that it's going to kill everyone. But they want to scream and tell people to pay attention because we're going to be facing extreme events like this on a more routine basis. That is Andrew Friedman. He's a climate journalist at Axios, and he's been covering extreme weather events for a decade and a half. And he says that no one, not even the scientists that study this stuff, were prepared for the level of extreme heat that descended over Europe this last week. You know, the UK Met Office has studied when a 40 degrees C temperature might happen. 40 degrees C to an American who doesn't know the Celsius scale, you know, a high of 104 degrees has always been this limit that that no meteorologist ever thought would be crossed in their lifetime in the UK. Hello, and welcome to this very special YouTube live from the Met Office in Exeter. This is the Med Office headquarters. I'm 
meteorologist and weather presenter Ada McGiven. And it is an extraordinary spell of weather. I've been a meteorologist for a long time. Really, this is one of the most remarkable forecasts I've seen in my lifetime. Last Tuesday, the thermometer at London's Heathrow Airport clocked in at 104 degrees Fahrenheit, or 40.2 degrees Celsius. The airport runway melted. More than a dozen wildfires broke out across London, while tens of thousands evacuated from wildfires in Spain, France, and Portugal. Europe is not ready for heat like this. And new research shows Western Europe is seeing a three to four times increase in heat waves compared to anywhere else in the northern mid-latitudes. And none of this would be possible without climate change. This was largely because of us. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, we're talking about the extreme heat that just gripped Europe, how climate scientists understand it, and the best ways to convey this new reality. Faced with the surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing. But the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a frontier forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. A couple weeks ago, a climate model from the U.S. government started showing 40 degrees Celsius heat descending over England. Again, that's 104 degrees Fahrenheit. And a lot of meteorologists didn't quite believe it, including Axios's Andrew Friedman. So the experience of seeing this heat wave first show up uh, about 10 days ago, maybe a little more, uh, on one computer model... uh, made most meteorologists look at it and think that the model was smoking something. The American computer modeling system um, has been upgraded, but there's a long-running storyline of it not being as accurate as the European model is. The European model was not showing um, that level of heat. But as the days went on, the European models started showing something similar. And Andrew was like, wait a minute, this might actually happen. And then they converged. The fact that we've got a red warning for extreme heat, and within that red warning area, we're expecting record temperatures and temperatures that the UK has never recorded before. So levels of heat we've never before recorded on Monday and Tuesday. And when it did happen, you know, I personally have been a little bit kind of in this weird state of sadness and shock uh, watching this play out, partly because, you know, this was well-warned days in advance. It was well-warned decades in advance. And any failures to act, either on the short term in terms of what policymakers can do to uh, help people survive uh, episodes of extreme heat, as well as what society can do to reduce uh, climate change. You know, all of those failures to act are on us. The atmosphere is going to do what it's going to do now. And what it's doing is making extreme heat worse and more likely. 
This spring, a billion people across India, Pakistan, and China baked in an extended heat wave. India and Pakistan saw some of their warmest springs on record, an event made 30 times more likely by climate change, according to the World Meteorological Organization. Now, Europe is a region unaccustomed to extremely hot temperatures, so this latest summer heat wave took a staggering toll. Axios reported over 2,000 dead in Spain and Portugal alone. And while 90% of U.S. homes have some kind of air conditioning, that number is only 5% in England, under 5% in France, and only 3% in Germany. And the lack of ways to keep cool has really dangerous consequences. This reminded me, and it reminded most scientists, I think, closely of the Pacific Northwest heat wave last year, which was another region that's extremely far north, not accustomed to such weather, doesn't have a high air conditioning penetration among the population. And yet we're seeing temperatures well above 100 degrees. And when an unprepared region gets hit with this kind of heat, our traditional notions of hot weather spells are shattered. Uh, wire photo agencies that supply media publications like Axios have a history of making heat waves look like fun events, like people playing in a fountain, uh, people in front of an open fire hydrant, kids frolicking. That's not what heat waves of this magnitude really are. This was people getting wheeled into emergency rooms, travelers getting stranded, the Queen's guards getting water poured into their mouths, and fires, lots and lots of fires. Now, I did not have, you know, wildfires in and around London on my climate disaster bingo card for 2022. I did not expect wildfires in Scotland and Ireland. Seeing some of those images was a little bit surreal. So let's talk about what actually happened here. Can you just describe the meteorological phenomenon that just gripped Europe? Europe was the victim of a conspiracy of atmospheric factors. And they're both uh, pretty unusual. One is a stubborn area of high pressure, also referred to popularly as a heat dome, that was sitting over um, pretty much central to Western Europe. Now, what's that? what that's doing is it's causing air to sink, it's rerouting weather systems around it, and it is uh, causing its own area of above average temperatures. And then you had this air mass straight out of a, the Sahara Desert, pretty much, that moved north into Spain and Portugal and affected them for quite a significant period of time. And we saw temperatures go all the way up to almost, almost 117 degrees in Portugal. But what happened next was you still had that heat dome with its clockwise area of rotation around it. And then you had an area of low pressure sitting to the west of the of Iberia. Now, that low pressure area then moved a little bit north and the air currents between the you know the flow around the low and the flow around the high basically kind of formed like a funnel and rocketed that hot air all the way up to the UK, all the way up to the far northern reaches of the UK. And today it's actually traceable uh, in Sweden and other parts of Scandinavia. 
So is this some sort of unprecedented atmospheric setup like Hurricane Sandy was? No. We've been seeing these stubborn, strong heat domes occur in the summertime and other times more frequently and more in- they're getting more intense. And at the time that this heat dome was setting up over Europe, you also had one over Asia. You also had one over the United States. You had actually two over Asia, one in Eastern Asia and one in um, more Central Asia. And looking at the broad Northern Hemispheric pattern, scientists are kind of seeing some of the fingerprints of climate change in the broad circulation. So like in the setup of the jet stream. So let's talk a little bit about that. A few weeks ago, you wrote about a major new study that explains some of the reasons why Western Europe in particular is seeing heat waves that are already outpacing the increase in heat waves in other parts of the Northern Hemisphere. So you're showing that heat waves are increasing about three to four times faster than other parts of the Northern Hemisphere. Can you talk a little bit about that phenomenon? Why is it taking place? What are the fingerprints of climate change? The study that came out a couple weeks ago, which now looks ridiculously well-timed for a journal article, um, and, and it's purely random that it came out when it did, but the study that came out about a couple weeks ago showing that Western Europe is, is seeing a, a faster spike in heat waves than other parts of the globe really tied that to jet stream patterns. Most people, other than meteorologists, like sometimes don't even know what a jet stream means. They just hear the term. Um, and it's a common term used on forecasts, uh, you know, on TV or elsewhere. But it's really just a narrow corridor, uh, like a highway of fast-moving air that sets up uh, contrast between air masses and steers storms. So what they've been seeing is certain ways that the jet stream is shaped downwind of Europe. So times when it splits in two uh, and you have that jet stream split encourages the weather to get backed up, like traffic going into the Holland Tunnel over Western Europe. And that in turn encourages these long-lasting heat domes. So it's a little bit of a complex chain of events, but it, it's kind of a, it was a creative study in that it teased out this pattern that other people hadn't seen before or just hadn't noticed. And this dual jet stream structure it does seem to have some sort of potential influence from climate change. Uh, specifically the change in the difference between the temperature at the equator and the temperature in the Arctic, because the temperature in the Arctic, as we know, is warming so much faster than the rest of the globe. And that may be slowing down the jet stream a little bit, especially in the summertime, and encouraging these double jet structures to uh, to appear. The attribution science for extreme weather events like heat waves, has gotten a lot better over the last decade. Uh, and I believe the 2019 European heat wave was found to be made 100 times more likely due to climate change by researchers at the University of Oxford. The UK Met Office says that the chances of seeing 40 degrees Celsius days in the UK are tenfold more likely with climate change. So 
tell us a little bit more about the science behind how we actually attribute these events to an overheating planet? Yeah, so the attribution research of uh, extreme events has been one of the fastest developing areas of climate science that is out there. One of the areas that scientists have been able to answer questions relatively rapidly with the first big uh, climate attribution study that I remember being of the 2003 European heat wave, um, which I think that study was actually published in 2004. And the method is actually like really intuitive and simple. So basically, scientists create these models of the Earth system, one with climate change and one without. And then they find the probability of an extreme event, like a heat wave, in those two scenarios. And the difference in probability between the world with climate change and the world without it, that's the degree to which you can say climate change is responsible for something like a heat wave. Sometimes the conclusion is a little bit muddled, but on heat in particular, it's very clear what the influence is. And we're getting to a point where we're seeing more and more heat waves where the statement from scientists is this heat wave would have been virtually impossible in a world in without greenhouse gas, you know, human emissions of greenhouse gases. This was because, largely because of us. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll explore how climate scientists are reacting to the heat wave and how journalists can do a better job of covering it. Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CCO Scott Ingstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruqi for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. So you're talking to climate scientists and they're watching these heat waves pummel India and Pakistan and China in the spring and then Europe and the Western North America this summer. What are they saying to you as you're talking to them? I mean, how are they reacting? The, these are the very people that have been talking about this for years. They're seeing it play out right on schedule. What are they saying to you? Yeah, so the scientists that I have been talking to who are studying extreme events and have been for a long time are angry, are fired up. Some of them are depressed just by the dichotomy between what the science has showed, how many briefings they've given of what the science shows, and how little action has been taken. The fact that this heat wave hit in the same, you know, eight-day period after the talks with the latest talks with Senator Manchin fell apart was actually reflected in some of the scientists' comments uh, about government's inability to take uh, large-scale action on climate change. And 
You know, some of the best comments that I get from scientists, though, are about the the duality that they carry within themselves, that they exhibit beyond what they're carrying. You know, they're the duality of having a mix of incredible optimism and hope for a change, as well as a realization that what is occurring now and what is going to occur is absolutely awful. So so it's like this mix. And I think that that, that mix, it, it matches a lot of what I hear from other climate science reporters. And it matches what I hear from a lot of other climate scientists. You've been on this beat, the climate science beat, the climate impact beat for over a decade and a half. At moments like this, does it feel like the story is sort of leaping out of these climate reports and models in new and increasingly frequent ways? So it feels like, it, it, it's strange. It feels like the climate is moving faster than, not necessarily than the science, but then we can cover it. Like, well, like we're always chasing it. And that didn't used to be the case. In the UK, the Met Office does the weather on like BBC and that sort of thing. So the videos that they were putting out were just so somber, you know, of meteorologists saying, I never thought I'd see this. And I'm seeing temperatures above 40. And what I kept thinking was that the the people who have the pulse on the atmosphere today are climate fiction writers more and more. You know, the people who are writing books, and there's a book that's coming out now, I think I just saw it reviewed yesterday in the Washington Post, is about a Category 6 hurricane impacting the United States. You know, there are scientists talking about, do we need another category because storms are intensifying so quickly and bringing certain hazards that we didn't deal with before. But they're writing about, you know, they're writing stories about these things actually happening. The climate fiction writers seem to me to be almost on a a better footing with societal impacts and with, you know, what's really going to come. You said something about historic coverage of heat waves that grabbed my attention. And that is a lot of folks have swooped in and covered heat waves like a vacation. You've got the kids, you know, the the images we've all seen of the kids playing in the fountain, getting ice cream, melted ice cream. These are all, um, you know, holiday-oriented imagery. And that is starting to change. But for those of us who've covered this for a long time with some nuance, it's still frustrating to see how a lot of television journalists swoop into the story and maybe cover it as a weather story exclusively or cover it as a disaster story and then leave and then never provide any context. So you have a lot of different frustrating ways that this is being covered. That's changing, particularly in print newsrooms. I think people are really grasping the multidimensional nature of this story and getting better at, at, at conveying the right kind of imagery. But I'm just curious about how you've What are the misperceptions or mistakes that you see in coverage of these kinds of events, and how is that shifting? Yeah, so in I'll give you an example of what we've tried to avoid at Axios. I shouted out newsroom wide and said, "Hey, we need to avoid any imagery 
that says or conveys that this heat event uh, is joyful. You know, it's not like we can't have somebody cooling off in a water fountain, but it needs to be clear that they're doing so because it's unbearable. I think, by and large, you're right. The print media has has gotten much better. You have, like, the New York Times, Bloomberg, the Washington Post, with giant climate teams uh, that could probably now, at this point, invade a small country. But you also have TV to contend with. But in the United States, I think that there's been such a huge improvement in the way that TV meteorologists approach climate coverage, partly because of the influence of Climate Central and some of the teachings that they've done and the graphics that they've provided. But TV meteorologists are doing this on their own now. And having those scientific voices uh, come in, come into people's living rooms uh, pretty frequently is is really helpful, I think, for the issue uh, and for, you know, this particular event. But young people are not watching the local TV news. Um, they're online. And there's all sorts of memes going around on TikTok and on Twitter and, and other social networks that uh, either reinforce uh, denial messages or reinforce alarmism or, or what have you. So... It's kind of this constant battle between, like, how much do I freak people out and make them anxious and depressed versus really what, what is the reality here? And how can I level with people without making them want to go jump off a bridge? It's not like climate scientists want to scream and tell people that it's going to kill everyone, but they want to scream and tell people to pay attention because we have to, we have to, like, get things together to manage things, and we're going to be facing extreme events like this on a more routine basis, uh, and we better be prepared for them. Andrew Friedman is a climate and energy reporter at Axios. He spoke to me from Washington, D.C., where he was also preparing for a nearly 100-degree day. I usually record, like, Axios stuff from my closet, but that's only because it lasts, like, seven minutes. I'm sure the closet is a bit of a sweat box too. A little bit, yeah, right now. <laughs> yeah. And I've got air off, window closed. It's going to get hot in here as well. I guess we're sort of method acting through this interview. Exactly. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can find all our episodes at Canary Media. They've also got really killer coverage of everything decarbonization, so sign up for their newsletter. And of course, subscribe to this show anywhere you get your pods. This episode was produced by Alexandria Herr and Cecily Mesa-Martinez. Ann Bailey is our editor. Sean Marquand is our engineer. And original music came from Sean Marquand, Echo Finch, and Blue Dot Sessions. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors. That includes advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. Give us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. Send us an email if you've got some burning topic you want us to cover. And if you've got a friend or a colleague who you think would like this show, send them a link. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>